We got another special episode of the Bill Sang Podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about proof for Jesus. So, one of the times we have talked about proof for God, this is going to be proof for Jesus. And this has some to do with special revelation, some to do with history. I think I'm going to do yet another one, another episode on special revelation and how that can help us to know about God. But one thing that we have to understand when we're talking about proof for Jesus, particularly when it comes to his divinity, is that in order to believe that he is God, you must first believe in God. And that is given to us in Hebrews 11.1, 1, where it says that you must first believe in God in order to understand who he is. So that's the number one thing is we have to have an understanding and a belief in God if we're going to acknowledge that Jesus is God. Now, that's not to say that there haven't been people that have denied the existence of God to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior just directly, just through a fast-tracking system, so to speak, where one day it just hit them like a ton of bricks and they realized that not only is there a God, but Jesus is God and that he is their Lord and Savior as well. So we're going to go right into it then. And I have five different proofs for the existence of Jesus related to his identity as God himself. And the first one would be directly from special revelation and that being the biblical prophesies the biblical prophecies predicting him. And this is oftentimes talked about during the Christmas season. So if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say the prophecies are proof for Jesus, then Open up your Bible, read through the whole, the Old Testament, and you'll learn about how Jesus was predicted a long time before he ever came to the earth. Uh, the prophecies you'll find in the Old Testament, first of all, this one's found in Genesis, that being that one day that the son of the woman would one day come to the world and crush the head of the serpent. That can be found in Genesis chapter 3, and it's called the Proto-Evangelium. A very famous passage of scripture that is prophetic in its nature of the destruction of sin, destruction of Satan, and the coming of the Messiah. Other prophecies that you can see inside of the Bible regarding the coming of Jesus and regarding the identity of Jesus. In Daniel, I believe it's chapter 7, is the prophecy of the Son of Man coming on the clouds with glory. And it's very clear that this is a divine figure as the world is worshiping this one who comes on the clouds like the Son of Man. Very fascinating prophecy and strongly speaks to the divinity of Jesus Christ. But then other prophecies you'll come across would be in the book of Zechariah, talking about him riding on the back of a donkey, not on a stallion or a horse of any sort, but on a donkey, low and meek and humble, coming to his people in Jerusalem. In the book of Isaiah, you have lots of prophecies inside of the book of Isaiah regarding Jesus and his identity such as that he would be born of a virgin, such as that he would be called Emmanuel, that he'd be called the Everlasting Father. You have the prophecy about the suffering servant inside of the book of Isaiah, where you learn about how that he would die for the sins of the world, and how the, how the sins, the trespasses, the iniquities of mankind would be placed upon him, and that he would pay for our sins. By his stripes we are healed. 
And so these prophecies <clears throat> were written hundreds of years before Jesus even stepped into the scene. And so biblical prophecy is very important. And the reason why I say it's so important, oftentimes the claim will be made that, well, Jesus is actually sort of the Jewish version of this Greek God or or that Egyptian God or this or that. And there's lots of false claims out there, first of all. Some of them are just totally manufactured. But then some of them are just absolutely stretches or might sound somewhat similar to the, G to the story of Jesus. But when you understand that the prophecies of Jesus predate the stories of these other gods or or demigods or whatever it might be, it becomes very clear that Jesus indeed was a unique being and that he is God in the flesh and that the prophecies are pre preparing people back then for God himself to come to the earth. Number two, the consistency between both biblical prophecies and skeptical historical sources. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that inside of the Bible, so you have these prophecies, you have these revelations inside of the New Testament regarding who Jesus Christ is slash was, and when you read historic documents, they corroborate with the evidence. For instance, you have the Talmud, which talks about Jesus as a sorcerer. Now, right there you might say, well, but it's saying that he used witchcraft, essentially. Well, no, it's saying that he performed miracles, and it's calling him a sorcerer because they're trying to condemn him. And this is affirmed inside of the New Testament writings that he came up against the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they tried to discredit him by saying that Jesus was just using a sleight of hand, was just using magic. He was casting out demons by using demons. So when you read sources like the Talmud that says that Jesus was a sorcerer, that he was into witchcraft, and all these things, what they're actually doing, they're actually affirming the reality that he performed miracles. Also, I would say that when you look at some of the other writings, there, there are other writings about Jesus throughout history. For instance, you have Josephus, who was born, I think, just shortly before uh, Jesus Christ was crucified, if I'm not mistaken, or shortly after Jesus Christ was crucified, one or the other. He, he lived very close to the events of Jesus, and that is significant because most of the time, historic documentation was not created of ancient figures until many centuries after their existence, and so it's hard to trace their teachings and what their life events were really like. So the and one of the ones I find the most fascinating, though, it goes out, it goes outside the historians writing about Jesus but actually dives into just casual writings about Jesus, where this guy was writing a letter to his son from prison and was talking about Jesus in relation to Socrates and Aristotle, maybe Aristotle, I know Socrates for sure, but was talking about how these philosophers were killed and that Jesus was counted among them and that his teachings would survive him as well. So again, even though that that is contradicting the divine nature of Jesus, so to speak, that is still affirming the reality that he was a powerful teacher and an acknowledged teacher inside of his day. And so these are accounts that are noteworthy, that, are, that we need to consider, because we, we can question the divinity and the miracle work of Jesus, but we cannot question the reality that he is real. Number three, 
the empty tomb. And this is somewhat similar to the last one there. Uh, that being in the way that the easiest way that the opponents of Jesus and his disciples could have disproven the resurrection of Jesus would be to simply display the body of Jesus inside of his tomb. They couldn't do that. The tomb remained empty. Now, there's a lot of debate. Do we have that empty tomb still preserved today? And it's hard to say. The, the Catholics, they have a place that's sectioned off and held by tradition to be the actual tomb of Jesus. We really don't know. And there are other tombs that give us an idea about what Jesus' tomb could have looked like. Regardless of all the tradition, regardless of all the opinions and thoughts that go behind that, that Jesus' body was not found inside of a tomb. And thus, there is no way to debunk the idea that he was resurrected from the dead. Now, there are other alternative theories that have been devised, such as the idea that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, and that maybe he pushed the stone away himself from the inside of his tomb, that he only appeared to be dead. Um, there are even some religions that say that Jesus was lifted up to heaven before he could have been crucified, and um, makes it sound as though maybe somebody was crucified in Jesus' place, which would be totally contradictory to the message of the gospel. But there are lots of alternative theories out there regarding why the tomb was empty. But once again, where does it all point? It all points to the reality that Jesus' tomb ultimately was empty and that the Pharisees and Sadducees had no leg to stand on when they were trying to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number four, the emergence of the church and the conversion of Saul slash Paul. This one is particularly amazing because basically Christianity started off as an obscure Jewish sect of maybe a thousand plus people. And in the Roman world, once it was exposed that this was not the same as Judaism, it was outlawed, which is where a lot of the persecution of the church came from was once it was outlawed and so christians were being killed left and right and yet the church still continued to thrive and spread like wildfire one of the most powerful testimonies regarding this actually came from the rabbis of jewish tradition uh gamaliel in the book of acts i believe is acts chapter 5 where gamaliel happened so the pharisees arrest the disciples the apostles, they throw them into prison and their discussion, what on earth do we do with them? Do we kill them? Do we punish them? And Gamaliel steps up and he is acknowledged and he is a historic figure, by the way. And uh, in his wisdom, he has to offer and he is taken very seriously in those days. He says not to kill them, but instead to treat him as you would any of the other people that had appeared before him, uh, not to kill the apostles, rather, but to treat them as the followers, as everybody who had come before Jesus Christ, because there are other people that claim to be Messiah, and they would kill them, and then after they killed them, the, the followers just dispersed. The followers stopped believing and weren't so serious anymore about following after those traditions. Well, Gamaliel said, leave them be, and if 
they do begin to thrive, then this is clearly of God. And if we oppose them, we will be fighting against God, essentially. So the rise of the early church was something miraculous and is proof positive that Jesus Christ existed. And I would even go as far to say that it affirms the divinity of Jesus Christ. Saul of Tarsus, later on known as Paul, <coughs> uh, his conversion story, also miraculous, as one day he was killing and persecuting the Christians, but then the next, not literally the next, but one day he's killing and persecuting Christians, the next day he is converted. He claims to have seen, and it's written in the book of Acts, the resurrected Jesus Christ in a vision. He was blinded by him for a little while until one of the apostles, uh, one of the disciples, was he an apostle? I can't remember exactly. Uh, no, um, until one of the disciples came and healed um, healed him of his blindness. Man, now I'm going back and forth as to whether he was an apostle or just a disciple. Regardless, one of the followers, one of the believers came to him and healed his eyesight, gave him back his eyesight, and from that day forward, he followed Jesus Christ and became one of the most prominent of the apostles that he wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament and spread the gospel message all throughout Europe. So incredible story that the apostle Paul has. Number five, and this one you can chalk up to being somewhat subjective, but it indeed is some of the evidence that Jesus Christ himself said would exist. That being, the love displayed inside of the Christian church. The love displayed inside of the Christian church. Jesus said that we would know who his disciples are by how they love one another. Now, I know that a lot of people say, well, there's so many hypocrites inside of the church. Well, granted, there are lots of hypocrites inside the church, but that's because they're holding to a very high standard. And sometimes you fall short. Sometimes you don't hit the mark. And sometimes you just flat out make mistakes. On the same token, that so I've met a lot of nice people from other religions, from other nationalities, wonderful, wonderful people. Some of the nicest people I've ever met were Muslims, uh, Saudi Arabian Muslims, to be precise. And they incredibly nice people, incredibly hospitable. I can't say enough good things about them, but you know who the best people in the world that I've met are? Christians. Genuine, Jesus-loving, God-fearing Christians are the nicest, coolest, best people on the face of the planet because their hearts and their lives are filled with the Spirit of God, which is a spirit of love that goes beyond anything you can possibly comprehend. People like that are willing to be generous when they don't have a lot. People like that are willing to share when they have a lot to lose with sharing. Uh, they are willing to be honest. They are willing to ask forgiveness. They are willing to be sensitive towards you in your circumstances. They will pray for you. They will pray with you. They'll pray with others for you. They will embrace you wholeheartedly regardless of who you are or what lifestyle you happen to live. Genuine Christians are by far, in my opinion, the best people in the world because they seek after people. They, they have a heart that is like that of God. And I'm not saying that they equal to God in that regard because God's love is far deeper than what ours could possibly be. But they have the love of God residing inside of them. 
and it displays that there is something different about their lives and the world cannot even begin to grasp that. Now, having said all this, I have been going over how only 6% of Bible, uh, 6% of Christians in America have a biblical worldview. That is absolutely frightening to me. The only 6% of, of uh, Christians have a biblical worldview inside of America. In fact, that even makes you question whether or not they really are Christians. Well, this also lends to the idea of when we talk about hypocrisy inside a church, only 6% of Christians have a biblical worldview, so you can't really hold everybody to the standard, the other 94% to the standard they're being hypocrites because even though they claim to be Christians, I'm not going to say they aren't necessary, but they don't have a biblical worldview. So if they don't have a biblical worldview, then how are we to judge them by the standards that Christians actually hold themselves to? One example is we talk about how there is as much divorce inside of the Christian world as what there is in the non-Christian world. But the reality is, is among Christians that believe what the Bible has, that Christians that believe what the Bible has to say, the divorce rates are significantly lower, way lower, because they are actually trying to abide by the Word of God. And mind you, Christians that don't have a biblical worldview do not read their Bibles. It's not to say that they don't take marriage seriously or anything like that, but on the same token, that uh, they might not fully comprehend how exactly to reconcile difficult situations inside our marriages. But that's a different topic altogether. What I'm trying to say is that there is actually a big difference between Bible-believing Christians and those that simply claim the title of a Christian and maybe just go to church. Again, not 6% of Christians in America actually have a biblical worldview. 94% in that regard do not. So we have to keep that in mind. But this episode, of course, was about proof of Jesus. Let me just rattle those off real quick for you again, just to cap things off. One, biblical prophecies predicting him. Two, the consistency between scripture and the skeptical historical sources. Number three, the empty tomb of Jesus. Number four, the emergence of the church and the conversion of Saul slash Paul. And number five, the love displayed inside of the church. So once again, this is the Bill Saying Podcast. I appreciate you joining me for this special episode. Please like, share, and subscribe. Go to Rumble, go to YouTube, where you, wherever you are able to find this, and like it, share, subscribe to it, and we will see you next time.